Well, as we get into the teaching today, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, you forgot the offering. Trust me, pastors never forget the offering. We're actually going to be doing the offering after the sermon today. So, you know, we're in our teaching series called God Aloha, and uh, we have looked at generosity from several different angles. Last week, we looked at generous love, and we learned several things about generous love, including that generous love flows from a healthy well-being, that the more okay I am with myself, the more that love is able to flow from me. We also looked at that in order to love generously, we have to deal with our own biases. We've got to deal with our own religious snobbery, any sort of bias or hatred that we have, whether it's towards an ethnicity or whether it's towards the educated or the uneducated or the rich or the poor, that we have to deal with our biases because generous love sees everyone as our neighbor. And then we also learned that generous love will attract even the hardest of hearts. We could see people in church who we never thought we would see in church because generous love drew them in. So if you've missed any of the teachings in this series, you can go to our podcast or our website and listen to all of the teachings. Now, at the beginning of this series, I joked that you were afraid that within a six-week teaching series on generosity that I was going to preach on money for six weeks. And I promised you that was not the case, and it hasn't been the case. For the first four teachings in this series, we've looked at different aspects of generosity, but today is the day that we are going to talk about money. And we are going to look at the tithes and the offerings and what that has to do with generosity. And the title of today's teaching is this, Have I Got a Deal for You? Have I Got a Deal for You? So to kind of set up this teaching, I want to look at the concept of a franchise. Here in the United States, we have all sorts of different franchises. A franchise is basically a large business with lots of locations, but each location is owned by an individual business owner. The most famous franchises are fast food restaurants. And so I want to talk to you about McDonald's. Now here on Kauai, man, we love our McDonald's. I tell you what, I have eaten at McDonald's more in the nine months that I've been here than in the nine years before that, right? We just eat at McDonald's a lot. Part of that, let's be honest, is the one, two, three dollar menu, right? There's not many cheaper places I can feed my family than getting a one, two, or three dollar cheeseburger. But let's look at McDonald's in terms of a franchise. What does it take to have a McDonald's franchise? Well, first of all, it costs between one and two million dollars to open up a new McDonald's. And out of that one to two million dollars, the new owner has to have at least 500,000 of it in actual cash. So you've got to be able to put in 500,000 of actual cash and then you can finance the rest somewhere between one and two million dollars depending on which equipment you use and how your restaurant is outfitted. Then once you've got your restaurant in place, you have to pay McDonald's a one-time franchise fee of $45,000 just to get started. And then once you're started, every year, based off of your gross sales, you have to pay a percentage to McDonald's as your ongoing franchise fee. Now, there's different fees here and there, but all of those percentages work out to about 10% of your gross sales. An average McDonald's restaurant 
sells about $2.6 million in a given year, right? That's a lot of $2 cheeseburgers. But you've got to give 10% of that $2.6 million or about $260,000 you send back to McDonald's every year. So what do you get in return for giving up 10% of your gross sales? Well, first you get brand recognition. Everybody knows what McDonald's is. If you were to start your own small business with your own business name, people would drive by and they would have no idea what your restaurant was all about. But when they drive by and see the golden arches, they know exactly what's in your restaurant. And McDonald's does all of the national advertising for you. Second thing you get is even though you're a small business owner, you get all of the large business systems. McDonald's shares with you all of their systems that have been proven to work. And so their inventory system, their ordering system, how you purchase all of your food and how you get your food delivered to your restaurants, your cash register systems, your, your, how the food is made and produced and, and how the line cooks work. All of those systems are provided for you and they're proven to work. And then finally, McDonald's gives you all the training. They train you as a small business owner and then they also train all of your employees on how to run your restaurants. So you put in all of your upfront money, you give 10% a year, and in return, you get all of these benefits of being part of a large franchise like McDonald's. But you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like the tithe, because tithe is giving 10%. And so it sounds like you give your tithe to McDonald's, and McDonald's offers all of this in return. So let's take a look at how this works biblically. And I want to look at Jacob because I feel like Jacob was one of the first guys who actually said to God, have I got a deal for you? Jacob had a deal for God, and I want to look at this deal and look at what it means for us today. So we're going to go to Genesis 28, if you're following along in your Bible. And just to set up where we're at in the story, Jacob, the name Jacob means deceiver. So if you think about that, as a parent, a parent actually named their child Deceiver, right? The baby is born. Everybody's like, oh, the baby's so cute. It's so wonderful. Let's name him Deceiver. But that's exactly what they did. And Jacob lived up to his name. He turned out to be a deceiver. He First, he talked his brother out of his birthright, and then he tricked his dad into giving him his older brother's blessing which at the culture of this time was a very big deal to steal the blessing of the firstborn son. So when his brother found out what happened, his brother wanted to kill him. So now Jacob has to leave home. He's running for his life, running away from his brother. He's trying to get back to his original family lands. And on this journey, while he's running away, he's sleeping in the wilderness. And one night he has a dream and God encounters him personally in this dream. And this is the first time that Jacob has a personal encounter with God. Prior to this, God was the God of his grandpa, Abraham. God was the God of his dad, Isaac. But now, because he has this dream and God shows up and reaffirms all the promises to Jacob that he had promised his grandpa, Abraham, Jacob wakes up and realizes God is real and God is here right now. And so he gets some stones together and he builds a little memorial altar and he says, surely God is in this place. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 28, verse 20, where Jacob says to God, have I got a deal for you? 
says this, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So Jacob makes this deal. He says, God, if you'll be with me, if you'll keep me safe on this journey, you'll get me to my original homelands, and then eventually you'll get me safely back to my father's house. You'll provide for me food and clothing, and and all of this is accomplished. You'll be my God, and I will give 10% of everything I make back to you. And apparently God takes him up on the deal because what happens? Jacob does make it safely to his original family lands. While he's there, he is blessed abundantly. He becomes wealthy. He gets married. In fact, he ends up with two wives. Now that's a whole different sermon. We don't condone ending up with two wives, but he ended up with two wives. He did make it back to his father's home where his brother forgave him. He ends up having 12 sons. Those 12 sons turn out to be the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And out of the nation of Israel, God brings forth his savior, Jesus. So as you can see, God took him up on his deal. So what I want to look at here is God's franchise model. All right, this is a franchise system that I can have with God. And here's what I get out of the franchise. First, God's presence is with me. The God of the entire universe dwells with me, comes near to me, spends time with me. I can live my life in the presence of God. The second thing that I get is I get God's divine protection over my life. The God of the universe, the all-powerful God, who's more powerful than anything that could ever come against me, protects me. And so I know that if anything does end up touching me in my life, It's because God allowed it to happen to test me or to strengthen me or to teach me something. But I can live my life trusting that God's divine protection is covering me. Then I get God's provision for my life. The God of the universe provides for me everything that I need. Not necessarily everything that I want, but everything that I need. And then finally, God's perfect plans are accomplished in my life. I get God's absolute best in my life. So then what do I have to give as my part of the deal? Well, I live my life surrendered to God, and then I give him 10% of everything that I make. And that's it. You know what? That sounds like a pretty great deal. I get the presence of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, and the perfect plans of God. And in return, all I have to do is make God the leader of my life and give him 10% of everything that I make. That is the tithe. Now, Jacob lived about 430 years before God instituted the law with Moses. And in the law, God actually regulated the tithe. And so I want to talk to you about some of the specifics around the tithe. And I put the Bible verses up on the screen. We're not going to read them all today for the sake of time, but I wanted you to at least have the verses so that you could study them on your own. So let's look at this. First, the tithe is 10% of your gross income. That's Leviticus 2730. 10% of your gross income, everything that you make, you give 10% as the tithe. Now I know some people prefer to give 10% of their take-home pay. 
And if that's your conviction, I'm not going to argue with you. But to me, that sounds like you're putting the government above God. I'm going to let the government have their cut first, then I'll give God my tithe. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather trust God than to trust the government. So I'm going to put God first above the government and tithe off my gross income. The second thing is the tithe is the first 10% of your income. That's Exodus 23, 16. So when I get my paycheck, I give 10% to God first. I don't go pay all of my bills, buy my groceries, and then hope that 10% is left over. I give it first. So third, the tithe is to be given to the storehouse. We see this in Malachi 3.10. The reason there needed to be a storehouse is because back in those days, the culture, the economy wasn't based off of money. It was based off of goods. Therefore, most people gave their tithe in the form of goods. So they gave 10% of all their animals that were born. They gave 10% of the produce from their farms. They gave 10% of their new grain. They gave 10% of the oil that they made. And so there needed to be a storehouse to store all of the goods that were being brought in. So in each individual community, there was a storehouse. The people would give their tithe to the Levites, and then the Levites would bring the tithe and fill the storehouse. So now today in our culture, we have an economy based off of money, but we still want to bring our tithe to the storehouse. What does the storehouse mean? It means your local community. Where you go to church, your local community church is your storehouse. I know some people like to say, well, I give my tithe to this missionary in another country, or I give my tithe to the food bank. No, your tithe goes to your local church where you have community. And the storehouse is our church bank account. So you bring the money in and the money is put into the church bank account. For what purpose? Well, the tithe is to provide for your spiritual leaders and also so the church will have what it needs to serve the community. We find this in Numbers 18.24 and also in Deuteronomy 14 verses 28 and 29. You see, the Levites were set apart by God to serve in the temple. They weren't allowed to own their own land. They weren't allowed to work a different job. They couldn't have their own farm or their own cattle. So they had to trust completely in the tithe to provide for them and for their families. And then also, because the storehouse was full, if they were hungry in the community, if they were poor, if there was a natural disaster and the community was in need, then the Levites could go into the storehouse, bring the goods out, and be able to take care of the community. So today, for the church, your tithe, first off, pays the church staff. Your pastors and those who put the work in to run the church and to keep the church functioning are paid by the tithe. Also, because we have money in the bank, we're able to better serve the community. All of the ministries that we have, whether it's men's ministry, women's ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, the outreach that we do to the poor, feeding those that are homeless, everything that we do, we're able to do because we have the money in the storehouse. And finally, the tithe is holy. This is Leviticus 2730. Holy means that it's set apart for God. The first 10% of everything that you make is set apart for God. And there is something that goes wrong in our lives when we touch things that are set apart for God. Let's look at a few examples of this. The first example is Achan. 
Back in the days when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River and they were going to conquer the promised land to have the land that they had been waiting for, the first city that they conquered was Jericho. And you've probably heard the story, the people marched around the city seven times, the walls fell down, and the people were able to rush in and conquer the city. Well, God had told them in advance, don't touch anything in Jericho. The first city belongs to me. You can't take any of the loot for yourself. All the other cities, you can have the loot, but the first city belongs to God. But there was this man, Achan, while he was in Jericho helping to conquer the city, he saw some of the goods in there and he liked them. And so he took the goods for himself. And because he touched things that were set apart for God, the entire community was cursed. They tried to go on to the next battle against a much smaller city and they were routed and had to run for their lives. And they thought, oh no, God has abandoned us. And God said, no, I haven't abandoned you but your community is cursed because somebody touched the things that were set apart for me. Think about Uzzah. The Ark of the Covenant was probably the most holy artifact in the history of the earth. It represented the very presence of God. And at one point in Israel's history, the enemy nation had come in, defeated the Israelites, and had taken the Ark of the Covenant. And so when David had reestablished the kingdom, he wanted to bring the Ark back to the temple. So they went to get the ark. They put it on a cart. The cart was being pulled by oxen and the cart started to tip over and the ark of the covenant was going to fall on the ground. And Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark and he dropped dead instantly because he touched something that was holy in a way that it wasn't supposed to be touched. And finally, we can look at the concept of robbing from God. In Malachi 3.8, it says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Now, when I was on the streets in San Diego as a young man, I was a drug addict. I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God. I didn't have any morals. I was doing a bunch of bad things. But there was this crew that I knew on the streets in San Diego, and they had started robbing churches. They were breaking into churches, stealing computers and sound equipment, and they were hawking it off for their drugs. Now, as a young man, as a drug addict, as an atheist, as someone who had no morals, there was just something about robbing from God that just seemed like it was a little bit too much for me. There was something that was just wrong about stealing from God. So I wanted nothing to do with that crew, and eventually that crew did go down. So if me, as an atheist drug addict, didn't like robbing from God, then as followers of Jesus, we should really not want to rob from God. What did they say in Malachi would happen because they weren't bringing their tithes in? It says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The whole nation was cursed. It says their crops were infested with pests. Their crops didn't produce any fruits because they were cursed. So you can see the tithe is holy. It's set apart for God. And I don't want to touch it because I don't want to bring curse upon my family. I don't want to bring death into my family. So I'm not going to touch something that was set apart for God. Now, there's a lot of people that want to argue against the tithe. You could go on the internet right now and you can Google, I don't have to tithe. And you could find thousands of blogs where people are going to argue all the different reasons why you don't have to tithe anymore. Here's the problem. All of those people that are making those arguments, I'm willing to bet that almost all of them 
are trying to give less. You see, maybe if they were trying to give more, I would be interested in hearing what their arguments are. But most of them are trying to give less. The most common argument you're going to hear against tithing is this. You say, you know what? Tithing was regulated by the Old Testament law, and Jesus fulfilled the law, so we don't have to tithe anymore. The law has been done away with, and the tithe was done away with the law. Well, here's my answer to that. My first answer is this. Jesus said we should keep tithing. Look at Luke eleven forty two. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. What is he saying here? He's looking at the Pharisees, who are the religious rulers of the time, and he's saying, you guys are so bent on following the rules that you tithe off of the tiniest things. Even the, the little herbs that come out of your garden, you guys are going to tithe off of them. Yet you're missing some really important things like justice, like actually loving God. And so what does Jesus say? You should do these things without neglecting the others. He's saying you should get back to loving God and showing justice to people, but you should also continue tithing the way you have been. So Jesus said we should keep tithing. But my second answer is this, and this gets a little bit deeper. I want to go back to the very first mention of the tithe in the Bible, and that's in Genesis chapter 14. And what's happening here in Genesis 14 is there was a great war that broke out. There was four kings going up against five kings, and the four kings actually routed the five kings, and the kings and the people scattered and ran for the hills. It says the kings were even hiding in tar pits, hoping they wouldn't die. And so the four kings looted all of their cities, took all of their goods, captured as many people as possible, and took the captives off as slaves. Well, one of those guys who was taken off captive was a guy named Lot. And Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And this was one of those moments where it was like, you know what? You mess with the wrong guy. It's kind of like Taken, right, with Liam Neeson. He says, you know what? I have a very specific skill set. I will find you and I will kill you, right? So that's exactly what Abraham does. He hears that his lot, his nephew Lot has been taken captive and he goes all Liam Neeson on these guys. He gets some men together and he goes against these four kings and he wipes all of them out, sets all of the captives free and brings home all of the goods and the loot. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 14 and verse 17. It says this, then after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer, that's a fun name, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Now, that's kind of ambiguous right there. Who gave the tenth? Did Melchizedek give it to Abraham, or did Abraham give it to Melchizedek? Well, later on in Hebrews, it clears it up that Abraham gave it to Melchizedek. And then in verse 21, it says, The king of Sodom says to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. 
And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And then he names off those guys. So what's happening here? Abram brings all of this loot back. The king of Sodom comes out to meet him, but then also this other person, Melchizedek, comes out of nowhere. We've never heard from him before this. We never hear about him after this. All we hear is that he's the king of Salem and that he's a priest of God, and this is hundreds and hundreds of years before God actually established the priesthood and the law, but yet here is this man who is a priest of God. He blesses Abraham, and then Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Well, it kind of clears it up for us in Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament. Starting in verse 1, it says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, the king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. So let's break this down. So Melchizedek is, his name means the king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, which the Jews understood to be an early name of Jerusalem, which also means the king of peace. So he is the king of righteousness. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's the king of, of peace. He brought bread and wine with him, which sounds an awful lot like the communion, and he has a priesthood that will last forever. Who does that sound like to you? Jesus. Yes, it sounds like Jesus. You see, Melchizedek was an Old Testament symbol of Jesus. And so Abraham, giving the tithe to Melchizedek, what that was is Abraham symbolically giving the first tithe to Jesus himself. So what does that mean? That means that if the first tithe was given symbolically to Jesus before the law ever even existed, then the principle still applies today. The first tithe was given to Jesus separate from the law. Therefore, tithing to Jesus has always been separate from the law. And it still applies to us today. Now, here's the thing. Abraham gave that tithe by faith. He was giving that tithe because he trusted God. Even when the king of Sodom told him, why don't you go ahead and keep all the goods? Abraham said, no way, I am not going to keep your stuff. I don't want anyone to say that the king of Sodom has made me rich. I want everyone to know that I am blessed because I have faith in the one true God. So he gave his tithe out of faith. He also gave it out of gratitude, right? I am grateful that God has brought this great victory to me. So the first tithe was given by faith and from gratitude, not by obligation and not because it was a rule. So you see, you don't have to tithe. But if you don't, God doesn't have to hold up his end of the covenant either. And you would say, whoa, wait a minute, pastor. 
That sounds a whole lot like some mafia protection money kind of a deal. No, it's not. It's a covenant relationship with God. We have made a deal with God. And if we're not going to hold up our end of the covenant, if we're not willing to tithe to him, then what that says to God is we don't trust him. We don't have faith in him. We don't love him. And therefore, we're not in covenant relationship with him. And if we're not in covenant relationship with him, then he doesn't have to hold up his end of the covenant either. Think about our example with McDonald's. If you decided to stop giving your 10% franchise fee to McDonald's, you think McDonald's is just going to be like, oh, okay, that, that's good. That's your choice. No, they're going to show up with some tools. They're going to start taking down the golden arches. They're going to say, you're not a McDonald's anymore because you're not holding up your end of the deal. So you don't have to tithe, but God doesn't have to hold up his end either. So this is our God Aloha teaching series. So what does tithing have to do with generosity? Tithing is not generosity. Yes, you heard me right. Tithing is not generosity. We think, well, you know, we give our tithe at church every time, so we're being generous. No, tithing is not generosity. Tithing is just simply making your franchise payment to God. It's giving your 10% to God as part of the covenant deal that you're in with him. It is not generosity. It's just doing the basics of being in relationship with God. So tithing is putting your faith in God. It's saying, you know what, Lord? I'm going to give you the first 10% of what I've made because I trust you to take care of me with the other 90%. I'm going to trust God that you are my provider. Tithing is an expression of gratitude to God. I am grateful for all that God has done in my life, and I give my tithes as an expression of gratitude. Tithing is also making sure that your money doesn't own you, right? If I can't let go of even 10% of my money to honor the God of the universe, then that tells me that my money is controlling me. And I don't want to be controlled by my money. I want to be controlled by God. So I'm going to give my tithe just to make sure that my money doesn't own me. And finally, tithing is refusing to touch what is set apart for God. Man, this first 10% is holy. It's set apart for God. I don't want to bring a curse upon my household. I don't want to bring a curse upon my community. So I am not going to touch the things that are set apart for God. So again, tithing is not generosity. I don't have to pray about whether I'm going to tithe or not. I don't have to ask God about it. I don't have to think about it. It's just automatic. When I get my paycheck, I look at the gross and I give 10% of the gross. And so I go to kawaiibiblechurch.com slash give and I give my 10%. And I know a lot of times we'll say, well, you know, I'm, we're just not doing well right now. You know, uh, tithing will be a lot easier when we have more money. So we're going to wait until we have our finances in order. We're going to wait until we get our head above water. And then we're going to begin to tithe because tithing will be easier when we have more money. You know what? That's just not true. First of all, could we even consider that maybe the reason our heads are not above water is because we haven't started tithing yet? But the other thing is this, having more money does not make it easier to tithe. In fact, it makes it harder because it's a bigger check that you're writing to your church. I remember I was 24 years old when my grandma passed away. 
Her name was Louise, but we called her Wheezy because she had a really raspy voice. And my grandma Wheezy passed away. And, and after the insurance and the estate was sold off and, and, and all of the, the children got their cut of the inheritance, my dad shared his cut of the inheritance with my brother and I. So he sent each of us a check. So I got a check in the mail from my dad for $12,000. Now that may not sound like a lot of money to some people, but as a 24-year-old youth pastor who never had more than like 20 bucks in the bank, $12,000 was a lot of money. And you know what I did with that money? I bought a wedding ring, I bought a car, and it paid for our honeymoon. That money allowed me to enter into my married life. But before I bought any of those three things, I wrote a tithe check for $1,200. And at that point, it was probably the largest check I'd ever written in my life. And the reason I was able to do it is because I was already tithing off of my small paychecks. I was already tithing when I didn't have very much so that when I got a big check, I was still able to tithe. So you see, tithing is not generosity. So then what is generosity? Generosity begins after you tithe. Generosity is everything you give above and beyond your tithe. So after you put your tithe in the storehouse, you've given your 10% to your local church, then God encourages you. I want you to support this missionary. I want you to give to this family that's hurting. I want you to take care of this situation. I want you to give to the building fund of your church. I want you to give a larger offering for your church. That's where generosity begins. It begins after you tithe. Now I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up as we finish today. Listen, this is a hard message to preach. I know there are cynical people that just think, you know, pastor's just preaching on tithing because he wants a bigger paycheck. Pastor's just preaching on this because he wants to be blessed. And the answer to that is no. First of all, God is my provider, not you. I'm not preaching this because I'm depending on you to be my provider. Second of all, my salary is determined by the board and it's based on my performance. So just because we get a bigger offering in this month doesn't mean I get a bigger paycheck. You see, I'm not trying to get me blessed right now. I'm trying to get you blessed right now. I want to see you blessed as you learn the principle of the tithe and as you begin to experience generosity through offering. Let's finish with this, Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You know, there are several places in the Bible where it says it's not okay to test God. That testing God is wrong. This is the one time where God says it's okay to test me. Test me in this. Start bringing your tithe into the storehouse and just see if I won't open the windows of heaven and if I won't pour out a blessing over your life until it overflows. Test me in this. Listen, as you bring in greater tithes and greater offerings, that just means that the church's storehouse gets more and more full. So it doesn't mean that I get a bigger paycheck. What it means is that the church can do more ministry because we have more money 
We can serve more people in the community. We can begin to start new ministries. We can start doing drug addiction recovery ministries. We can start doing job skills ministries. We can start providing housing for the homeless. We can start providing after school programs. We can update our building so that our building is fully functional and can do all the things we need to do to serve our community. See, when you bring more, the church is able to do more. And when you bring more, the blessings of heaven are poured out over your life. God says, test me in this. Now, I know that for a lot of you, I'm preaching to the choir. There are many of us in this church who we already tithe faithfully, and we've been doing it for years. And if that's you, then this message is just a refresher. It's just an encouragement to continue the discipline. But there are some people here today who have never tithed before. There are some people who maybe every week in the offering you throw in $5 here or $10 there just because it feels like the right thing to do, but you have never committed yourself to giving the tithe. And I believe that today is going to be a miraculous day because some families are going to tithe for the very first time and they're going to begin a discipline that is going to open up the heavens and bring great blessing and great abundance over their families. And we're going to experience this amazing deal with God. We're going to get the presence of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, and the perfect plans of God because we entered into an amazing deal with God. Will you stand with me today? We're going to prepare ourselves to give our offering today by faith, by gratitude, not by obligation. Let's pray together.